Hello, everyone. Welcome to Professor Jamerson's podcast. This is covering Gloria Anzaldua, Borderlands La Frontera, chapters 1, 5, and 7, week 14. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. I hope everyone's doing well. Um, covering chapters 1, 5, and 7 in Anzaldua's uh, Borderlands La Frontera, the new Mestiza. And I really like how this reading is sort of complementing the last two weeks of readings that we've had. Remember, two weeks ago, we uh, read Linda Smith and talked about indigenous critical theory, looked at the peoplehood model. Last week, of course, we talked about Arjuna Potterai and and his his model for uh, understanding global cultural flows really based on this this, this scapes model. Remember the technoscapes and the ideoscapes and the ethnoscapes. But really, the whole point of that model is to understand the the nature of of global inequalities and how and how um inequality and oppression and social injustice how these things arise out of these disjunctures within these scapes within these global cultural flows and and i really think if we want to think about the past two weeks and anzaldua's work here um sits firmly in between these two but also pushes us in a new direction. Um, and it's quite clear, you know, from reading this, that it's very much based within indigenous epistemology, but it also includes elements of feminist theory, as well as uh, Marxist critiques of, of global capitalism. Um, and so we, we have this sort of intersection here, and intersectionality is going to be a key theme for us this week, this intersection here between indigenous epistemology and and the the global scapes that Apaterai described. But one of the ways that that Anzaldo is really is pushing us into a new direction in our consideration, really, of global social forces and theories that we can use to explain them that don't come from the West, because this is a big part of the problem in many ways, is is is, is Anzaldo is really taking this down to the individual level. She's talking about uh, the self. She's talking about identity. She's talking about families. And, and this is something that really doesn't quite come out in Linda's work that we read. She writes about this in other places or in a Potterized work. And, um, and we really haven't looked, uh, also, we haven't really looked at uh, Latinx identities. We haven't looked at Hispanic identities, uh, the Spanish speaking world identities coming out of there. We haven't talked about immigration or the border or um, a lot of these, some of these other hot button political topics. And so, uh, and Zaldua gives us a chance to talk about all of this um, um, in a neat little package here. Her writing is quite clear. It's um, conversational. Um, it's especially, uh, I would imagine, easier to understand if you speak Spanish, but I think this is also part of the point, right? There, She, she will go into Spanish sometime. And, and if, you know, reading chapter five, How to Tame a Wild Tongue, there are reasons for this. And, and, and part of it is, is, you know, if you don't speak Spanish or don't read it, then then you're not going to understand it. And that's part of, I think, the argument here is that is that we shouldn't be striving to completely understand uh, the identities of others. Right. And, and, and we shouldn't strive to completely sort of categorize uh, uh, social identities in the way that they have been under Western epistemologies. Um we also see right a nod to feminist theory and the the importance of individual experiences and interactions and and daily lives we have 
the use of poetry as a theoretical method here. And then we haven't seen that at all this semester. So, so really Anzaldo is presenting to us um, um, in terms of all the other stuff that we've read this semester, uh, a very different theoretical perspective. And that's why I sort of wanted to end with Anzaldua because it wraps up a lot of what we've been talking about in class uh, uh, for the past three months. And so the poem that opens up this chapter, chapter one, uh, the homeland, Aztlan, Aztlan, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to butcher this word, Aztlan, A-Z-T-L-A-N. I'm going to butcher this word. I'm not too good. I tried to like look up how to pronounce it on the internet and and the T I can't like the T is too subtle for me and, and I can't just I can't I can't get it with my tongue or my mouth right and and uh, once again right language is a part of our identities uh but Aslan is the name of and I keep saying it like Aslan like the uh line from the C.S. Lewis books uh the Narnia books um Aslan is is uh right now it is known as the border area right right now Aslan, the land, is is bisected by the Rio Grande River, and on the north side of the river is one country, uh, and on the, the south side of the river is another country. The way Anzaldua talks to it, talks about it, it's the, the U.S.-Mexican border, es una herida abierta, where the third world grates against the first and bleeds, right? Gives us a, a, a mental image of... of the pain that that this imposition has caused on the folks who've been living here for thousands of years, right? Most of the people living in this area are descended from the original indigenous population, which included the Aztecs. And, and Aztlan was just simply known as the northern part of Mexico for hundreds of years. It did not have this sort of arbitrary border bisecting it. And, and she starts here, right, the poem can be read as sort of a summary of, of what this chapter is about and the pain and suffering that this imposition has caused. Uh, the tortilla curtain turning into El Rio Grande flowing down to the flatlands of the magic valley of South Texas, its mouth emptying into the Gulf. The tortilla curtain, right, as a reference um, to the iron curtain that separated communist uh, communist East Europe from, from the capitalist Western European countries during the Cold War, Tortilla Curtain, uh, we can imagine what that means in the context of U.S.-Mexico relations. A 1,950-mile open wound divide, dividing a pueblo, a house, dividing a culture, running down the length of my body, staking fence rods in my flesh, splits me, splits me. Um, this is my home, this thin edge of barbed wire. And so once again, right, referencing these larger structural forces like uh, geopolitics and, and nation making, and then using poetry to bring this into the realm of the self and into the realm of our personal identity. And this is something that Alzandua does time and time again throughout the course of this work. And really, I well, had y'all read this chapter because it kind of sets the geopolitical stage, because it gives us the kind of context we need to understand her arguments later on down the road. Aztlan, as a part of northern Mexico, was its own place, right? Its own region, its own territory uh, inhabited by indigenous peoples. And then, of course, at the beginning of the 16th century, I'm quoting now here on page 27, the Spaniards and Hernan Cortes invaded Mexico and, with the help of tribes, 
that the Aztecs had subjugated, they conquered it. And so Mexico became a colony of Spain, bringing down the mighty Aztec Empire. Of course, after the after the the Spanish um, Empire starts to fade, Mexico um, fights a war of independence in 1820. Not too long after the American War of Independence in 1776, so it becomes its own independent nation, Mexico. Um, and then they lose a war against uh, encroaching whites um, coming down from the fledgling nation, the United States of America, and lose a war with these folks. And eventually this area, Aztlan, became the Republic of Texas, and then the United States, and then the Confederacy, and then the United States again. So this area has been inhabited by the same people, right? The same lineages, the same families throughout this whole time have seen uh, cycles of, 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 um, of conquest um, fought over this land. And, and each time the folks living there, the original inhabitants have always been placed a step below the, the social status of the conquerors. And so thinking about, you know, we've talked about colonialism on a global scale. Uh, Anzaldua is writing this right in the late eighties. She's saying it's still happening. And this is, I think an overlooked aspect of, of American expansion and the American colonial project is the sort of uh, uh, expansion into Mexico, the annexation of Mexico and, and the American Southwest from Mexico and Spain. Um, a very overlooked, I think, aspect of American expansion and the idea of manifest destiny. I um, mean, here she's talking about what it, what it means, what it has meant for the identity of Chicanas and Chicanos. Right, the descendants of the indigenous people and the Spanish uh, conquistadors that some of the indigenous folks um, had relationships with and had children with, and also uh, the children, their children having relationships with the new Anglo and cultures, creating this new mixed race. Right, uh, uh, Chicana and Chicana identity is is by definition a mixed sort of racial category which really flies in the face, right, of, of, of racial logic dominated by white supremacy and also dominated by ideas of racial purity. So that's one thing, the, uh, another sort of new direction that we're going in, right, thinking about sort of, sort of mixed identities and, and not just mixed from a racial perspective, but also mixed in terms of other vectors of difference. Anzaldua, right, writing as a woman, uh, is critical of the machismo, right? The 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 patriarchal, um, the patriarchal conditions found within Chicana and Chicano culture. She writes, and this goes back to even before Europeans arrived. The god of war—I will not try to pronounce that word—guided the Aztecs to a place that later became Mexico City. They founded a, a city called Tenochtitlan. Um, there, where an eagle with a writhing serpent in its beak perched on a cactus. The eagle symbolizes the spirit as the son, the father. The serpent symbolizes the soul as the earth, the mother. Together they symbolize eagle holding serpent. Together they symbolize the struggle between the spiritual, the celestial, and the male, and the underworld, the earth, and the feminine. The symbolic sacrifice of the serpent to the higher masculine powers, by the way, this image of an eagle holding a snake is still found on the national flag of Mexico. 
The symbolic sacrifice of the serpent to the higher masculine powers indicates that the patriarchal order had already vanquished the feminine and the matriarchal order in pre-Columbian society. And, and I don't know if y'all remember the video that we watched a couple weeks ago about uh, the, the Iroquois confederacy, but the, the, the narrator for that video talks about the Iroquois as a matriarchy. And, and, and that's not quite true. We had a long conversation about this in, in one of my graduate social theory courses. It's not true. Um, there, there's no, anthropologists haven't really identified any society ever in the history of humanity that has been a matriarchal society where women have the majority of power. What we do find in something like the Iroquois Confederacy is more of a shared, a balance of power that still tilts in favor of the men. But, but is also counterbalanced in many ways by the, the, the importance of the clan mother as the most important political position in Iroquois society. So it's not that the Iroquois are matriarchal or women have more power, it's just there's a little bit more power sharing from a gender perspective in Iroquois society. Um, and here, right on Zaldua is taking her, her indigenous heritage to pass, to, 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 to task, excuse me, for um for moving towards the direction of patriarchy and and uh, and so it's not just right we're talking about chicana identity as mixed from a racial perspective it's also right chicana identity is also oppressed within larger uh latinx identities because it's gendered as female uh anzaldua is also a lesbian which you can imagine her parents uh uh coming from a long line of, of farmers right, uh, sort of conservative mentality, we're not keen to accept. And so she feels like an outsider within her group. She feels like an outsider in the larger society in which she lives. And all of this, right, is affecting the words that you're reading here in this book. And this is, in many ways, her, like, really making sense of, of all this, this complicated uh, uh, intersectional identity and, and, how, and how to... Um, come out of these realizations with a sort of positive outlook on your consciousness as a human. That's what, right. This, the chapter seven is all about like towards a new consciousness, towards a consciousness that, that both we are proud of and that, that the rest of society is also empathic towards and appreciative of. And uh, so, so despite all these hardships, she really does end up coming out of this with a fairly optimistic message. So just a couple other things from this first chapter, um, you know, thinking about American uh, annexation and conquering of of Texas and of of northern Mexico, which is really what Aztlan is. It's just northern Mexico. This is really what Texas is. It's northern Mexico. Um, the border fence that divides the Mexican people was born on February 2nd, 1848. Uh, this is right before the California gold rush, which we talked about in class with the signing of the treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. This is president James K. Polk, by the way, it left 100,000 Mexican citizens on the Northern side of the border annexed by conquest along with the land. They go from being, uh, citizens of, of the nation of their heritage to outsiders. And they didn't even move, right? They weren't even forced to move. Like for example, uh, enslaved Africans. They weren't forced to go anywhere. It's just the border changed, right? The border moved. And, and as a result of that, they became outsiders in their own land. And, um, you know, my wife, she does research on, on India. And we see very similar 
dynamics happened with India 100 years later in 1947 with the partition when uh, when India uh, uh, and its decolonizing efforts right strikes this deal and and we have two independent nations right Pakistan and India come out of this Pakistan is for Muslims in India uh, for Hindus and uh, my wife's family is Sikh and they're they're in between there are border people in many in 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 similar ways as Chicanos and Chicanos and 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 one of the things we see in when borders change, right? This is what happens. People become outsiders in their homes, in their homelands. Um, they become the other as a result of forces beyond their control. And, and this is a lot of what this book is talking about here. Um, of course, the treaty was never recovered. Um, some Mexican-American people resisted these and, of course, opened themselves up to mass lynchings and, and incarceration and all sorts of racial terror and racial violence. Um, along with Anglos, right? Whites are called Anglos in here. And, and that, is, that is definitely placing whiteness within the perspective of Chicana uh, uh, mestiza identity and consciousness. Um, so we move right for she moves right from here into talking about how her family used to farm. And, and, and so it's not just like Anglos moving in and taking over land and, and deeming the original inhabitants of the land to be an other. It's also they bring their ideas with them and, and one set of ideas that we haven't, you know, we haven't talked about that very much in this class. But one set of these ideas are ideas about relationships with the environment and, and about how to farm properly and coming from a European tradition, right, farming methods from Europe are heavily dependent on water because there's plenty of water. Um, but trying to do this in Texas, right? And, and Aslan, excuse me, see naming is important. And Aslan is, is different because there isn't much water. So you're trying to fully irrigate these fields and you're destroying what little uh, uh, um, water heavy environments there are, completely ignoring the fact that there is such, such a thing as dry land farming. People have been farming in Aslan, in Mexico, for for many many thousands of years in fact um mexico is considered along with china and um the middle east is one of the major historical cradles of agricultural revolution and and of food production and of course we think about think about the major grains that we eat the grains these are the foods that keep billions of people fed these are the foods that allow populations to rise from the, you know, like subsistence hunter-gatherer societies living in bands and needing lots of territory to roam around in order to gather food, in order to grow lots of food and grow surpluses of food, to, to have complex societies and civilizations. Mexico is one of these places, right? We always trace it back to the Middle East because the Middle East led to Europe, right? Led to the West. But, but, but Mexico is one of these places too, one of these cradles of civilization along with China and, and, and uh, also India as well in the Indus Valley. Um, you know, China, of course, you know, masters the domestication of rice. In the Middle East, we have the domestication of like wheat and rye and other grains. And this is where like that, that make our bread. Um, Mexico is where corn. Mexico is where corn was turned in from like a grass into a crop that is grown all over 
the world and all over North America. South America is the home of the potato, by the way, um, and the tomato, I think. Um, and, and it wasn't, this wasn't used through heavy irrigation. I mean, the Aztecs did because they built a city in the middle of a huge lake, which is now Mexico City, and, and had an amazing irrigation system. But in Aztlan, we didn't have that. We had dry land farming, and it is possible to farm in deserts. Um, indigenous peoples have been doing it in North America and around the world for thousands of years. But once again, uh, uh, invaders bring in ideas as well, right? Linda Smith talks about this. And so bringing in ideas of farming completely changes water dependent farming completely changes the, the, the environment and, and in, in negative ways to make a living. She writes, my father became a sharecropper. Loaned him seed money and living expenses. At harvest time, my father repaid the loan and forked over 40% of the earnings. We, roast, we raised chickens. And, and really, you know, by all accounts, by her accounts, her parents were very proud of the work that they did. But then she writes later that, you know, her father died from working himself to death at the age of 38. So once again, thinking about these large, abstract, these, these, these structural forces, these global cultural flows, these flows of information and people and things and materials, how does this affect individuals? How does this affect families? And, and um, <clears throat> this is how Enzaldua kind of brings this down to earth for us. All right, moving on to chapter five, how to tame a wild tongue. This is probably the most famous chapter in the book, just in the way that she deals with language. It's just been widely read as a result of this, um, you know, thinking about the importance of language and identity, right? We think in words and I don't, I don't know if I told you the story about the uh, Maori actor. And I heard this story when I was in New Zealand, taking a class of Linda Smith. Um, I heard a story about a Maori actor who was doing quite well. He was, he was living in Australia he was finding work. You know, it's hard to find work as an actor, uh, steady work as an actor, but he was finding steady work and he was doing well. Um, but he, he had to quit the profession and quit what he was doing in Australia and move back to New Zealand because he had stopped dreaming in Te Reo Maori. He had stopped dreaming in his native, uh, uh, his, his people's sacred language and had started dreaming in English. And this to him, was a big sign that he had been too disconnected from his people and from his heritage and from his um, and from his identity, from his sense of self. Right. This is this is uh, uh, once again thinking about how this relates to to the individual, and and so language right becomes this important facet of our identities. It's we think in words, we think in languages, and we think in specific languages, and we think in specific words, and so. Um, there's like this sort of, there's this very, uh, um, intimate relationship between our identities and the words that we say and, and the languages that we speak. And she writes here, right. For a people who are neither Spanish nor live in a country in which Spanish is the first language for a people who live in a country in which English is the reigning tongue, but who are not Anglo for a people who cannot entirely identify with either standard Formal Castilian Spanish, I think like what they speak in Spain or in Madrid. Nor standard English. What recourse is left to them but to create their own language? A language where they can connect 
a language which they can connect their identity to, one capable of communicating the realities and values true to themselves, a language with terms that are neither Espanol ni Inglés, but both. We speak a patois, a forked tongue, a variation of two languages. So if we think about, right, this notion of Chicana identity as being a mixed identity, Chicana Spanish is going to be a mixed uh, uh, kind of a language, one that brings in elements of English, ones that brings in elements of Nahuatl, which is the indigenous language of the Aztecs, ones that brings in different ways of both speaking English and speaking Spanish into a common tongue. Chicano Spanish sprang out of the Chicanos' need to identify ourselves as a distinct people. We need a language which we could communicate with ourselves, a secret language. For some of us, language is a homeland closer than the Southwest. For example, if you are a Chicano living in Chicago, and she writes here, for many Chicanos today live in the Midwest and the East, and because we're a complex, heterogeneous people, once again, there's this notion of a, of a mixed identity. Right? And on some level, this is important because we all have mixed identities to a certain extent no one is is like pure right there, there there is there is like purity is 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 an illusion in terms of our identities we all come from other peoples we all come from other cultures because we're a complex heterogeneous people we speak many languages some of the languages we speak are standard english which is what you would do if you were trying to get a job i would imagine she had to take classes, she writes in this chapter. She had to take classes specifically, not for speaking English, but for getting rid of the Chicano accent, right? So, so, so to take classes for speaking English, for speaking standard English without an accent. They'll also speak working class and slang English. So think about like the Regan's character from Friday Night Lights or, or anyone who says, who loves Texas. Standard Spanish, standard Mexican Spanish, these two are different. North Mexican Spanish dialect, Chicano Spanish, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California all have regional varieties of this. Tex-Mex and Pachuco, which uh, are also called Calo, which is, uh, she says, what the Zoot Suiters used to wear, what used to speak in California and Texas in the 1930s. She writes about getting... Uh, hit on the hand with a ruler for speaking in this way at school. She writes about um, how she'll speak in English with other Chicana academics in order to um, evoke a sense of status, even though she knows, and she's pretty sure the other Chicana people that they know that she knows want to speak in Chicana Spanish, but they don't right? Because of fears of judgment from outsiders, because of fears of not being taken seriously as academics. She had to argue with her graduate committee. And you've got, we've got to think that she was an absolutely brilliant graduate student, right? We have to think this. Um, arguing with her committee uh, semester after semester to be able to include Chicana literature as part of her dissertation research, because it wasn't considered legitimate. And I and and she says it's because of this mixture, right? We we look down on mixture because of the logic of race, because of the logic of of modernity, which emphasizes purity and progress, and not mixture, mongrelization, uh, um, 
was a word that used to get thrown around and still is by white supremacists today. And then she goes into some of the mechanics here, right? Chicanos, after 250 years of Spanish Anglo colonization, have developed significant differences in the Spanish we speak. We sometimes collapse two adjacent vowels into a single syllable and sometimes shift the stress in certain words, such as maiz and maiz and coete and cuete. I don't know what any of these words mean, and I, I'm, I'll probably try to look some of them up before we meet on Tuesday. But I don't know what these words mean, and 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 this is really, this is this is above my head, my level of comprehension because I don't speak these languages. But I do understand the context that she's um, talking about. This right, it's important to talk about these details because it's in these details that we realize that it is its own thing, right? That it is its own language. Linguistic terrorism. Chicanos who grew up speaking Chicano Spanish have internalized the belief that we speak poor Spanish, right? And this is, and this is, I mean, in, in the late nineties, this is maybe still kind of a thing, right? This is uh, the Chicano Spanish and, was not considered its own language, was not considered its own dialect. And actually this book that we're reading this week went a long way towards legitimizing that fact, right? But for a long time, right, Chicana academics would speak in English to each other because that was a sign of refinement and intelligence, not the poor right, pigeon Spanish that they grew up speaking. Poor from a quality standpoint, but also poor from a class-based standpoint, right? To be close to another Chicana is like looking into the mirror. We're afraid of what we'll see there. Pena, shame, low estimation of self. In childhood, we are told that our language is wrong. Repeated attacks on our native tongue diminish our sense of self. The attacks continue throughout our lives. English, in this sense, becomes a neutral language. Not, for Linda Smith, right, the language of the oppressor. It becomes a, a neutral meeting ground for Chicanas to have our conversations in public areas, for example. And so most of this chapter, right, is about the importance of language in terms of how we identify ourselves and how we think of ourselves in, in relation to the, the world around us. But she also writes here that there are other, right, we use all of our senses. We use all of our senses to inform our, our sense of identity. She writes, there are more subtle ways that we internalize identification, especially in the forms of images and emotions. So it's not just our senses, it's our thoughts and feelings as well that provide us with a sense of identity. For me, food and certain smells are tied to my identity, to my homeland. Wood smoke curling up to an immense blue sky. Wood smoke perfuming my grandmother's clothes, her skin, the stench of cow manure and the yellow patches on the ground, the crack of a 22 rifle and the reek of cordite, homemade white cheese sizzling in a pan, melting inside a folded tortilla. My sister Hilda's hot, spicy menudo, Chile, Colorado, making it deep red, pieces of panza and hominy floating on top, my brother Carito barbecuing fajitas in the backyard. Even now, and 3,000 miles away, I can see my mother spicing the ground beef, pork, and venison with chili. My mouth salivates chili. My mouth salivates at the thought of the hot steaming tamales I would be eating if I were home. 
right? Our senses, our thoughts, our emotions, right? Our, our language, right? These are all the things that tie into our identity. And all of these senses, thoughts, uh, language, right? All of these are, in fact, informed by the world around us. I'm reminded here of the, the concept of like inner subjectivity uh, when we talk about phenomenology, when we talked about phenomenology earlier this semester. All right, moving on to chapter seven. All right, now moving to chapter seven. Uh, I think the, you know, the big theme with this chapter is really, you know, what does all this mean in terms of, of a single identity, right? All these different facets, all these different emotions and feelings and senses and forms of identity, right? Female, lesbian, indigenous, Mexican, Tejana, uh, uh, Chicana, um, American, right? If you're if you're American citizen, um, what do all these? I how, how can we reconcile all of these? And and the word doesn't really show up here, even though um, this is written during really the first generation of famous uh, intersectional research. But the word doesn't show up, but really, what she's talking about here is intersectionality. And intersectionality, um, the term itself, comes out of Black feminist uh, theories. But but Anzaldúa um, is very clearly engaging in, in in a similar type of theorizing here, uh, in a constant state of mental nepontalism, an Aztec word meaning torn between ways. La mestiza is a product of the transfer of the cultural and spiritual values of one group to another, being tricultural, monolingual, bilingual, or multilingual, speaking a patois, and in a state of perpetual transition. The Mestiza faces the dilemma of the mixed breed. Which collectivity does the daughter of a dark-skinned mother listen to? And, and, and Mestiza as a racial category is a category of mixture. Uh, Jose Vasconcelos, a Mexican philosopher, called uh, the Mestizo a cosmic race, la raza cosmica, a fifth race, embracing the four major races of the world. This is opposite to the theory of the pure Aryan, right? The theory of racial purity that works in the service of white supremacy, right? These two are linked, right? Racial purity and white supremacy. And to the policy of racial purity that white America practices. Uh, his theory is one of inclusivity, at the confluence of two or more genetic streams with chromosomes constantly, quote, crossing over this mixture of races rather than resulting in an inferior being provides hybrid progeny Immutable, immutable, more malleable species with a rich gene pool. Um, I'm no fan of biological arguments about race. I'm no fan about biological arguments about race. Um, but this is the sort of thing that really, that really catches the ire of hardcore white supremacists who do care very deeply about the biological or supposed biological realities of race. This is. We looked. We look to words like this, right? We hear phrases like the Browning of America, that America is becoming less white and more sort of racially mixed as time goes on. And in fact, uh, uh, by 2050, I think white Americans will be still the largest uh, racial group in the United States, but will not be uh, the majority group. Right now, whites are still a majority in the United States. With uh, if you if you like combine right African American and Latinx folks and indigenous peoples and 
and, and other uh, 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 identities of color, it's still whites who, who are like majority in terms of numbers, but also in terms of power. The numbers equation is going to change. Uh, and while these white supremacists are afraid that the power equation is going to change as well. That's where a lot of this talk comes from. That's where a lot of this anti-immigrant rhetoric comes from, right? From these, from rooted in these words right here that open up this chapter. Anzaldo, of course, takes a much more optimistic view about this mixture, as does Valencelos. But it nevertheless has major consequences, right? This reconciliation of identities um, doesn't just take place on the social level. And Alzondo was not so much concerned about that. She sees op reason for hope and optimism there. But she is concerned about this the way this reconciliation occurs inside the individual. Cradled in one culture, sandwiched between two cultures, straddling all three cultures in their value systems. La Mastiza undergoes a struggle of flesh, a struggle of borders, right? So, so what Anzadu is doing here is mapping out the geopolitical, the spatial, like the, the actual border, right? The Rio Grande, and then mapping this onto the body, mapping this onto the individual, mapping this onto the self. Lemestiza undergoes a struggle of flesh, a struggle of borders, an inner war. This cell off actually sounds off, also sounds, excuse me, a lot like double consciousness, for example, except we're talking about more than two here, right? And and this and this and this note this that has been theorized as a kind of triple consciousness. And you have seen uh, a feminist theorist of color writing about something like triple consciousness. Like all people, we perceive the version of reality that our culture communicates. So what version of reality is your culture communicating? And I mean that not just like, that's a rhetorical question, but think about what culture you come from. What perception of reality is coming out of this culture? Like others having or living in more than one culture, we get multiple, often opposing message. And this is where this conflict within the self comes from, right? Different cultures perceive different realities. And when these converge inside a single individual, this can create some tension. The coming together of two self-consistent but habitually incompatible frames of reference causes un choque, un choque, a cultural collision within us and within la cultura chicana, commonly held beliefs, of the white culture attack commonly held beliefs of the Mexican culture and both attack commonly held beliefs of the indigenous culture. Subconsciously, we see this, we see these opposing messages as an attack on ourselves and our beliefs as a threat. And we attempt to block with the counter stance. And this, for Anzaldo, is an impediment to progress, both social progress and the progress and growth of the self. What we need, she says, is a higher tolerance for ambiguity. More than a tolerance for ambiguity, we need to accept ambiguity as part of reality. And this is something she shares with postmodern theorists, by the way. These numerous possibilities leave La Mestiza floundering in uncharted seas. The borders and walls that are supposed to keep the undesirable ideas out are entrenched habits and patterns of behavior. These habits and patterns are the enemy within. Rigidity means death. 
only by remaining flexible is she able to stretch the psyche horizontally and vertically, the progress of the self. And, and La Mestiza constantly has to shift out of habitual formations from convergent thinking, analytical reasoning that tends to use rationality to move toward a single goal, like Max Weber or the Western mode, to divergent thinking, characterized by movement away from set patterns and goals. And this is where we could, if we're talking about geometry here, she's talking about fractal thinking, which is exactly what Apaterai suggested. We consider the global culture. We need to be thinking about a perspective that includes rather than excludes, she said. But I want to come back to a sentence here earlier in the paragraph. Rigidity means death. Rigidity means death. This is exactly what Adorno said uh, uh, in the first reading we had for the semester. Uh, we have to get away. Sociology has to get away from rigid thinking or else it will die or else it will cease to become a legitimate form of knowledge because it's it, it becomes too set in its ways and and rigidity means um one set of conclusions one perspective this is not what sociology ought to do this is not following that logic what society should be all about either so so we can see right all of these sort of references and connections to a lot of the stuff that we've read earlier this semester the mestiza can be jarred out of ambivalence by an intense and often painful emotional event, which inverts or resolves the ambivalence. I'm not sure exactly how, she says. The work takes place underground, subconsciously. And so even here, right, she's saying, I don't have all the answers here. I don't know. I'm uncertain about some of this, which is very different from the way Karl Marx writes, isn't it? It's very different from the way that Emil Durkheim writes, isn't it? But this is part of her argument, right? We have to, we have to, uh, um, we have to account for what we don't know as much as what we do know, maybe even more. It is work that the soul performs, she says, and we can't understand how that works. That focal point or fulcrum, that juncture, right? We last week we talked about disjuncture. Here she's talking about a juncture. That juncture where the mestiza stands in between Anglo and Spanish and indigenous culture, right? She has theorized this is disjuncture. This is how outsiders see the mestiza, right? See the border woman, right? This is how outsiders see her as a, 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 um, as a result of disjuncture. But here, right, she's saying this is a result of juncture. This is where the mestiza stands and is where phenomena tend to collide. This is where knowledge is produced. It is where the possibility of uniting all that is separate occurs. This tension, this conflict, the exact place where the mestiza finds herself is a potential source of unification. This assembly is not one where severed or separated pieces merely come together, nor is it a balancing of opposing powers. In attempting to work out a synthesis, the self has added a third element, which is greater than the sum of its severed parts. That third element is a new consciousness, a mestiza consciousness, right? 
Chicanas are their own people with their own way of thinking, with their own language of thinking the ways that they're thinking. And it is, and though it is a source of intense pain, this new consciousness, its energy comes from continual creative motion that keeps breaking down the unitary aspect of each new paradigm. I mean, this is pretty powerful stuff. By the way, this is a super famous book. This is a super famous book. And we can see why. The future will belong to the Mestiza because the future depends on the breaking down of paradigms. It depends on the straddling of two or more cultures. By creating a new mythos, that is, a change in the way we perceive reality, the way we see ourselves, and the ways we behave, La Mestiza creates a new consciousness. Maybe one of these new tools, right, that Linda Smith was talking about. We need new tools, right? The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. This Mestiza consciousness, right? The articulation of it here represents a new tool for us. It represents a way to navigate the junctures and escapes and the disjunctures and the inequalities caused by these global flows that our Potterai talked about. To link back to our two other global readings for this week. All right, about done here, but let me just see if there's anything else that I want to discuss before I call it a podcast. Just a couple things. I think she spends a lot of time talking about this Mestiza consciousness. Uh, I think mostly it comes off as being discussed from a racial perspective, but towards the end of this chapter, she um, talks about gender and sexuality as well. So I just want to go over a few of these passages real quick. You're nothing but a woman means you are defective. It is the opposite. Its opposite is to be a macho. The modern meaning of the word machismo as well as the concept is actually an Anglo invention. For men like my father, being macho meant being strong enough to protect and support my mother and us, yet being able to show love. Today's macho has doubts about his ability to feed and protect his family. His machismo is an adaptation to oppression and poverty and low self-esteem. It is the result of hierarchical male dominance. Um, and so what we see here is, is that uh, Mestiza women are being treated poorly by Mestizo men because uh, in part of Mestizo men's position on a racial hierarchy. In the, green, in the gringo world, the Chicano suffers from excessive humility and self-assessment, shame of self and self-deprecation. Around Latinos, he suffers from a sense of language inadequacy and its accompanying discomfort. With Native Americans, he suffers from a racial amnesia which ignores our common blood and from guilt because the Spanish part of him took their land and oppressed them. He has an excessive compensatory hubris when around Mexicans from the other side. It overlays a deep sense of racial shame. To wash down the shame of his acts of his very being and to handle the brute in the mirror, he takes to the bottle, the snort, the needle, and the fist. She continues. Tenderness, a sign of vulnerability, is so feared among men that it is showered on women with verbal abuse and blows. Men, even more than women, are fettered to gender roles. We didn't talk about this when we talked about feminism because we're talking about women. But men, 
just as much as women are held to gender standards. And this is oftentimes not a positive development, right? Women at least have the guts to break out of bondage. Only gay men, she says, have the, had the courage to expose themselves to the woman inside them and to challenge the current masculinity. I've encountered a few scattered and isolated gentle straight men, the beginnings of a new breed perhaps, but they are confused, she writes, and entangled with sexist behaviors that they have not been able to eradicate. We need a new breed of men. We need a new masculinity, excuse me. We need a new masculinity and the new man needs a movement. And so once again, thinking about most of a consciousness, it's not just a racial thing. It is a gender thing. It is a sexuality thing. What else? What else? The indigenous part of all of this is what, for her, the most invisible part. I am visible, see this Indian face, yet I am invisible. I both blind them with my beak, nose, and am their blind spot. But I exist. We exist. They like to think I've melted in the pot, right? The, the melting pot, where we just go to U.S. and everyone just sort of melts together and come up with this American culture. No, they want to think that I've melted in the pot, but I haven't, and we haven't. The dominant white culture is killing us slowly with its ignorance. By taking away our self-determination, it has made us weak and empty. The whites in power want us people of color to barricade ourselves behind our separate tribal walls so they can pick us off one at a time with their hidden weapons, so they can whitewash and distort history. Ignorance splits people, creates prejudices. A misinformed people is a subjugated people. A misinformed people is a subjugated people. And how much misinformation do we see on the news every week? To bring this around to ourselves, perhaps. All right. But she ends on this sort of positive note, right? We, we, we've come to this point where now we know what this consciousness is. We can build off of it. We can make alliances, right? With this new consciousness, we can use this as a tool to assert our humanity, to assert our sovereignty, to assert our rights to Anglos, to show Anglo culture what we have to offer. It really sounds quite a bit like Du Bois writing 100 years earlier. Right? Mestiza have something to offer. Chicanos have something a lot, more than just something, a lot to offer to global society. If only the powers that be would allow this to happen on Chicano terms and not on Anglo terms, for example, not on male terms, for example, not on heterosexual terms, for example. And so in discussing all these hardships, I think it's remarkable that she's able to come up with kind of a, this optimistic, uh, 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 this optimistic sort of conclusion at the end here. All right, I'm out of steam. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please let me know if you have any questions about it. I look forward to discussing all of this with you in class this week. I hope everyone's taking care of themselves, getting sleep, getting rest, eating well, yada yada yada. 
Um, let's finish up the semester strong, okay? I'll see you on Tuesday. Bye-bye.